It's Monday, December 4th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Bergam Splurge has dried up. The Berg Surge never quite happened. Bergmentum has relented. Store those I Dig Dug campaign buttons in a display case, not on your lapel. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is no more. Oh yeah, he's alive and still loving the great state of North Dakota, which has the third lowest unemployment in the country and the highest workforce participation in the nation. If nothing else, I learned that from the Doug Burgum candidacy, which is actually the thing that ended. I remember when I said, if nothing else I learned from Doug Burgum, I, I actually learned nothing else from Doug Burgum. He seems like a nice fella. I'd love to have him as uh, my governor of Dakota, you know, between him and Christy Nome, I'd go with Doug. And look, Asa Hutchinson, he didn't get the gist send-off. We failed to raise a toast when we heard the last of Will Hurd. We did not spill out a 40 when Mike Pence chose to relent. I let it pass when it turned out the candidacy of Tim Scott was all for naught. And who can forget Miami Mayor Francis Suarez? Not me. Literally, I didn't even have to Google GOP candidates who dropped out to remember that Francis Suarez dropped out. That's a tribute to you, Mayor Suarez. I did have to Google that to find out that Perry Johnson and Larry Elder are no longer in the race. Probably many of you are saying they were, ever. Yes, thanks to our social media search engine. Long may you survive your federal trial, Google. By the way, doesn't that trial seem to have a lot higher stakes than anything said so far in any Republican debate? Yeah, no one's really paying attention to that trial. Did you know the case was paused until May? A little before the Indiana primary, if you set your watch by the GOP primary schedule and perhaps had Doug Burgum in your GOP primary advent calendar. Doug Burgum son of the Peace Garden State, piecing out to greener pastures or whiter, in the case of North Dakota, this time of year. By the way, this is the only guy who should look at spending time in Iowa and New Hampshire in January and say, ooh, bomby, sign me up. He should say that, but he shan't. He is out. Now it's down to Nikki, Ron, Chris, and inexplicably Vivek to give voters a voice and a choice. On the show today... Well, first, let me mention, as I have in this space before, Wednesday, 6 p.m., Village Underground, New York City. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll put a very attractive flyer that the Comedy Cellar has put out. They own the Village Underground. I'm doing a talk. It's all about Israel. It will have audio. It will have visual. All will be experienced 6 p.m. this Wednesday, Village Underground, if you could go make your reservations online. All proceeds will go to charitable causes, victims of the Hamas terrorists. On the show today, I shall talk about one quote, just one quote, pulled from the mouth of Donald Trump and put to the candidate Ron DeSantis. How did he deal with it? Did he squirm out? We shall see. But first, with war raging in Gaza and Ukraine, the presidential election, as we've been talking about, well, the primaries start in just a few weeks. And computers about to self-actualize, it's easy to lose track of the teeny tiny small stories like China population 1.4 billion. Up next, I will be talking to Ted Plafker, correspondent for The Economist, who has been in China for over 30 years. And this year is a huge year for change and not necessarily on the upside for Chairman Xi 
Ted Plafker of The Economist talking about China up next. So with the recent summit between Joe Biden and the president of China, Xi Jinping, I think Keith Richberg of the Washington Post put together my thoughts most expertly when he wrote in a headline, is Xi Jinping all powerful or weak? Depends whom you ask. So I want to ask Ted Plafker, correspondent in the Beijing Bureau of The Economist. He's been based in Beijing since 1989. Wow, he pre- he predates Chairman Xi. Hello, Ted. Welcome for the first time ever to The Gist. Yeah, long time, first time. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we know that Xi consolidated power and he's now in his right unprecedented third five-year term. So that would seem to speak of strength, but against that backdrop, what's the case for weakness? Is it that is it that he's been purging all these other ministers at the top? Well, I, I know Keith. I haven't seen him in years. I knew him back in the day when he was at the Washington Post Bureau. I didn't see that piece, uh, but the framing he didn't is didn't ask actually, you, I guess. No, no, he didn't. Um, the framing is quite appropriate. It depends whom you ask. Uh, there are two levels that matter. There's the popular level, and then there's the elite political level. I have some access to the popular level. I have practically no access to the elite level. And... He secured his third term in October of last year. And then in November and December, really big things happened that were very impactful on his his level of control and his sense of political security. So when he did push through his third term, and it had been announced years before, everyone knew he was moving that way. Mm -hmm. um, It seemed like he was firmly in control of everything and everyone. Another nickname we have for him is the chairman of everything. Mm-hmm. But he has really taken a ding because uh, November we saw the first protests against the, the COVID restrictions and they were lifted in early December, uh, seemingly in response to the demonstrations. And apart from showing him to be a little bit susceptible to public pressure in ways that he never had been before, it also left him with um, a damaged reputation among the public. Up until then, it was remarkable how much most people in China were willing to go along with the COVID restrictions, especially in the early stages of the pandemic. There was this attitude that um, uh, the government knows what they're doing. They're asking us to do hard things and we're going to be good citizens and do the hard things. And look what's happening in Milan and New York and London and these countries with their democracy and their individualism are just face planting and we are handling COVID the right way. It's not easy, but our government knows what to do and we're doing it. But by the end of it, by late last year, it was obviously too much. It was a bad policy. It was uh, killing the economy. It wasn't really keeping COVID at bay after all. And the chaotic way, especially that they let it drop really overnight, it was it was absolute whiplash when they dropped it all. There was nearly daily, daily testing. Um, every building, every shopping mall, every government official building, every train required COVID tests and um, limited access. And Overnight, they just dropped it, and they weren't really prepared. Had they used all that time to um, to buy time and get some things done that they needed to do, it it might have helped them look better. But in the end, it looked just chaotic, and he had this aura of um, invincibility and infallibility. He knows what he's doing. He's a smart guy. We don't have to like it, but we have to give him credit. He knows what he's doing. 
well, no, here, no clothes. He, he obviously didn't know what he was doing. This was a bad policy. He let it run too long. And I think that's a, a big ding that's going to maybe even come back to haunt him. Um, people were willing to put up with him kind of no matter what. And now there's a lot less confidence. And of course, the state of the economy doesn't add to that. Yeah. Uh, people's general sense, uh, right track, wrong track. Not that there's really polling to that effect here, but there are uh, clear indications that if you did poll people, uh, wrong track would probably win. A lot of people are right. not feeling confident about the economy, about the future. People don't want well, to have kids. Well, you can kids. just say it. You, there are proxies for that in the uh, spending um, in the spending statistics and other revealed preferences of the economy. Well, two things: the spending, the consumer spending, is in China more so than most other uh, big industrial economies. Consumer spending is a very big part of the economy, and another. Um, abnormally large part of the economy is the real estate sector, the residential housing sector. And both are in bad shape now. Residential housing is in crisis and spending is has not picked up. So the economy um, for most people is not looking good and uh, not looking promising. So you began your answer by saying that of the public facing aspects of Xi's reign. You have some insights. You talked mm -hmm. about some. As far as what's going on in the corridors of power, you can only guess. But guess members of the media do. And a couple of signs, and they didn't hide this, or you can't hide this. Um, he removed his foreign minister. He removed the, it's a very important role, the uh, person in charge of the rocket or the missile command. What does this tell us? It tells us that things are not quite stable, and it's very. It, it comes down to reading tea leaves, really. Um, what's happening in, on the front page of the People's Daily? What's happening with political appointments like that? And in the case of the foreign minister, this was an official who rose unusually quickly to a very high position. Uh, they call it a helicopter ascent, and it was widely understood that this was Xi Jinping's guy, his decision to move him up. And to have him taken out this way so suddenly, so abruptly, less than a year into his job as minister with very fishy circumstances, he just sort of disappeared. There's still no official explanation. Uh, that's a sign that one of his very closest associates um, has done something bad, has done something wrong. You never know exactly what it means. Um, so I do have some access to the public sphere, to the elite political sphere. I think of it as sort of a a black box or a black box shark tank. There is a number of people circling around big, big sharks. They might be military figures. They might be tycoons. They might be other princelings from elite political backgrounds. Uh, the other members of the Politburo Standing Committee. I don't know if it's 20 people, 50 people, 100 people who are conceivably in a position to challenge him. And we have virtually no insight into what's going on there. But I think there must be some connection between the lack of public confidence uh, it, it, there is interplay. It gets reflected, uh, could move in both directions, um, have much less insight there, but there have been other indications, tea leaf reading sort of indications that he might have problems at the elite internal level. There was a period where he wasn't appearing on the TV news and the front page of the people's daily. There was a period where at various conferences and seminars, Unlike the normal routine where his name is mentioned every other minute and nothing is framed except in terms of what the wise old leader Xi Jinping said and told us all to do, a series of conferences where his name wasn't mentioned that much and no one paid homage that way. And it, it, that all gets you thinking. You can't be sure what it means, but it probably doesn't mean nothing. 
There was a big piece in a publication, an Asian publication, Nikai, which is, I guess, the barons of Asia. And I guess it's fairly reputable, but it made some waves and no one else that I know could uh, confirm this. But it concerned Chairman Xi essentially getting yelled at by some older senior members of the party. I'm sure you know about this piece. Do you buy it? And do you think it really happened? And are there – it does seem to imply there are more – prestigious or more powerful people in China who could dress down Chairman Xi? Yeah, again, it's a black box and hard to know for sure. The old model of leadership did include a a form of consensus. Older leaders, retired leaders had a lot of say. And the idea was that no one would ever get to be as powerful and personality cultish as Chairman Mao did. Everyone realizes that went badly. But Xi Jinping has gone a long way in that direction. The, the, the sense of personality cult, um, the, the pictures of him and the quotations and um, just the this portrayal of him all over the country is really kind of astounding. Um, so I read that piece. It made a lot of waves. There were a lot of people who thought it was absolutely not true. Uh, it's a very experienced, well-connected Japanese journalist. He's been here a long time and uh, had some sourcing. Very hard to know. Um, I think the overall consensus was that that piece was probably overreaching, but not based on absolutely nothing, that there is some sense that, uh, there is a little less confidence and a little less unanimity, um, at the elite level. So I want to ask you about a very famous international initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative. And this was uh, for many years, China would lend money to the developing world and they would use this to gain prestige and power and inroads, sometimes literally. But it seems to have turned. So a couple statistics are that Boston University has a center that calculates such things. And they say that in 2016, China was lending out $90 billion. Now it's down to $5 billion. William and Mary uh, does information about Chinese financing and found that Beijing is the world's largest official debt collector at this point. It seems like their model has gone from actually giving money so that both can benefit and roads get built in Africa to maybe soaking uh, the developing world to make some money on bad deals. What do you know about the Belt and Road Initiative and how is it going from China's perspective? Well, we've been looking at this a long time. Uh, they just celebrated the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. It has morphed over the years. In fact, a year or two after it first launched, they sort of hit pause and uh, renamed it. It used to be called One Belt, One Road, OBOR, O-B-O-R. And then they changed it to BRI. And it's it's a lot of different things. It's a big, fuzzy thing. They're not giving money to countries. They're lending, and actually at commercial terms, not like other development banks that that do concessionary lending. Uh, most of their loans have been on commercial terms, and the loans to some poor countries um, have been called in. They haven't been willing to take a haircut, and they put some stress on some smaller, poorer countries. But again, it's not in t- for decades before Belt and Road. China was financing in Africa and some other Central Asian countries, uh, railways and stadiums and hospitals. I remember reporting from Kyrgyzstan about oh, 2006, I think it was, and the Chinese had built a road that was going to run from the border to the capital into the main copper mine. And then the last five kilometers between the Chinese border and the end of the road, they, they changed up the terms and were leaning on them. Well, we need a stake in the copper mine. Um, it was the same sort of heavy handed 
uh, hardball influence seeking operation in a small neighboring country. It very much, it very much reminds me of uh, Henry Hill's voiceover in Goodfellas about what happens when you go into business with a mobster. But now the guy's got to come up with Paulie's money every week, no matter what. Business bad? Fuck you, pay me. Oh, you had a fire? Fuck you, pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? Fuck you, pay me. <laughs> Reminds me of a quote I read in a piece. I wish I could remember the name of the writer. Something along the lines, the Chinese Politburo believes in communism the way mafia bosses uh, believe in Catholicism. Yeah, they do, but you know, <laughs> business is business. Yeah. So is the, I don't know, failure, but major transformation of Belt and Road, at least a 90 something percent diminishment in the reach and ambition. Do you think that's an indication of China's economic uh, malaise or is it in some ways uh, a cause? Well, I'll quibble a little with your framing. I'm not prepared to say it's a failure. Uh, it's been scaled back a little. Xi Jinping himself has said that it's time to focus more on uh, smaller projects, um, not necessarily big gargantuan ones, but smaller. I forget the phrasing he used. Um, China has had harder economic times. There's just less money available. There is, uh, again, no polling and no voting here per se, but um, the idea that China is spending a lot of money on these other countries is politically troublesome, and that does bubble up. They, they are sensitive to what people think eventually. And in harder economic times, the idea that we're building roads in Kyrgyzstan and Malawi and wherever um, doesn't, uh, doesn't play as well. So it's being adjusted and modified, and, um, and they are struggling with this perception that they're uh, predatory lenders and uh, that it's all debt traps. I don't think they intended it to be debt traps. They can be very clumsy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Their politics get in the way of everything. It happened with the Confucius Institutes, uh, these, these schools that were supposed to be teaching Chinese all over the Western world. And if they just taught Chinese, it would be fine. But no one can be a part of a Chinese bureaucratic system and not deal with the politics and not express an opinion about Taiwan or the Dalai Lama or whatever it is. And the politics intrude and make them do things that in turn make the other countries say, wait, you were teaching Chinese, but now why are we having a fight about Taiwan or Tibet? So they, they have a bureaucratic clumsiness which I think has also affected the Belt and Road thing. But they're, they're calibrating and um, uh, scaling back a little bit because of economic issues, and um, they're not giving it up. And uh, another question, cause and effect question, is the flow of money out of China. Wealthy Chinese are spending it overseas. Uh, this used to not be the case. It definitely is. China's currency is very weak. So is that a reflection of the economy being poor, or is that weakening the economy? Both. It's Well, it's a reflection of uncertainty and a lack of confidence. People with a lot of wealth, and it's, again, not entirely new. The pace is picking up. Um, my earliest days here, people with a lot of money always had a plan B. They would want to get some of it out. They would want to get foreign passports for their kids or their grandkids, get a foreign education. Um, everyone in China has always been aware of the potential for real, s- serious, disruptive political turbulence. They've had famines, they've had a cultural revolution, and, um, and things have turned really quickly. Uh, so people have always had the idea that it would be good to have a foothold somewhere else, store some money somewhere else, get some of your wealth out. It has accelerated. A lot of people with money now are feeling less confident about the future and looking for ways to get their money out. And that in turn does affect the economy. Capital outflows are 
are not good for the economy. And waning confidence is another cyclical thing that feeds on itself and is not good for the economy. What about the Uyghurs? Is the crackdown on the Uyghurs continuing unabated? That's another thing that is morphing. It's um, I haven't been out to the region since um, just before the pandemic. I was there in December of 2019 on my most recent visit. That's already a long time ago. They've moved from a model of these vocational schools, which is what they call them, or prison camps, which is what a lot of other people call them. Uh, they claim to have shut those down. A lot of them seem to have just turned into light industrial factories making shoes or small electronics or whatever. Um, people may or may not be free to come and go. It's absolutely uh, oppressive. Uh, the environment there, just metal detectors, police inspections at every entrance, to every hole-in-the-wall noodle shop, getting, filling a, I was driving around in a rental car, I rented a car, I was driving around, followed at every, just city streets or highways, driving 300 kilometers across the whole place, followed by two or three or four cars at every every turn. And when you have to stop and fill the tank, it's like uh, an Israeli embassy checkpoint. You, uh, everyone else out of the car, driver out of the car, ID, inspect the car, open the trunk, mirror under the, under the car to inspect, and you have to swipe an ID and, um, just filling a, a car with a tank of gas is a, is a whole security operation. Um, Uyghur people, they're a minority there. Uh, absolutely deadly peril to speak to a foreign journalist. I, I felt a little silly going there with the understanding ahead of time that I will probably just choose not to talk to any Uyghur people. I, I spoke to some of the Han Chinese. Um, I just wanted to feel the environment, feel the mood and the vibe. And I realized anyone I stop and talk to immediately has a big problem with the police that could end up with really dire consequences. Mm -hmm. Maybe not so dire, maybe just a scary day, or maybe years in jail for just talking to me. So I had this bizarre experience of spending a week in a place with a resolution to not actually speak to many of the locals. And it is continuing. Um, they, they are convinced that uh, they're thwarting a major security threat. My own view is that they're probably doing more to create a threat. They're really angering almost everyone there. The Han Chinese there have kind of gotten used to it. They feel like it's for their benefit. The place is safe. They live in a dangerous place, and this is all necessary. It's not targeted at them. They tend to get waved through the checkpoints a little more quickly. But if you were a local Uyghur who didn't really resent the government so much, now you kind of have to. They've made it pretty impossible not to. And finally, is th all of this, um, this econo these economic doldrums, the headwinds that Chairman Xi is facing, has it led to any degree of a demand for political reform, civil rights, openness, democracy? There's always been a minority of people who are willing to speak up and stand up and talk about civil rights, civil society, democracy. That's a small minority. They're important. Maybe one day history will consider them very important. Um, but you, do, you don't hear a lot of it. What you do hear more of is on the economic policy side, that we should be doing more for um, market-oriented reforms like China in the heyday. I mean, the, the Chinese miracle was based on market-based reforms and opening up industry to private investment and not having so much of the state planning. And in the Xi Jinping era, it's gone way back towards political control, more party control of enterprises. 
a bigger role for the state-owned enterprises, more party control of private enterprises. Everyone seems to think that that is just a drag and is less efficient. It creates less employment. It makes less money. The economy has done better. Enterprises have done better. And uh, people in general have just done better when there's been more market, less state, less planning. So there is a lot of sentiment. You will hear people talking about that quietly and carefully because it's dangerous to say things here. Um, But there is a lot of commentary quiet around dinner tables and people occasionally writing things very carefully, uh, saying that the market reforms of the old days were pretty good and maybe we should be doing more of that. Ted Plafker is a correspondent in the Beijing Bureau of the Economist. He's been based in Beijing for over 30 years. He knows of what he speaks. Ted, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. And now the spiel. Three and a half weeks ago, Donald Trump gave a speech in Claremont, New Hampshire. In the one hour and 43 minute mark of a one hour and 45 minute speech, and this accounts for the time spent standing during Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA, Trump said something rather offensive. This is not unusual. Trump said actually many offensive things. This man said something he shouldn't say. I will defend. He said... Chris Christie is a fat pig. You, you cannot say that, sir. You can. Please, please take that back. Please take that back. No, 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 no. He said Chris Christie is a fat pig. You cannot do that. But that wasn't the quote that made quasi headlines or that made Trump look worse than he sometimes looks without really trying. Here was the quote in question. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. The next day, Kristen Welker of Meet the Press had on Ronna McDaniel, chair of the Republican National Committee, whose debate Welker had just co-moderated. And Welker asked McDaniel about her comfort with the word vermin, McDaniel ducked the question. This was picked up in a lot of media. The New York Post covered it under the headline, Trump goes full Hitler by calling political foes vermin. Well, I would say for the full Hitler, there are a few more compulsories to now. But it is an authoritarian trope to call your opponents vermin, be the vermin of the insect worm or rodent variety. Yesterday... This was weeks later, of course. Welker had on Ron DeSantis, who she once again asked about Trump's word. DeSantis did not wish to play the game. He did not wish to spend the bulk of his Meet the Press appearance answering for his biggest rival. So after an initial rebuke of the question, Welker dug in and this exchange took place. The use of the word but, but, vermin. But Kristen, are you comfortable with clear. that term? But are you comfortable with that term, Governor? L- let me let me just say on the DOJ. Well, first of all, I'm responsible for my what I say, and, and I say things differently. But on the DOJ and the FBI, let's just, I mean, just, we have just seen, on my question, though, Governor. Excuse me. What I what I'm not what I'm not comfortable with 
is FBI agents uh, going after parents going to school board meetings. I'm not comfortable with DOJ FBI working with tech companies to censor dissent. I'm not comfortable with how this has been power has been exercised. And you have an agency that is very political. People say, oh, their career, but it's 99 percent donations to Democrats. You are seeing how Gov that happens. Governor, so I don't use the, the same rhetoric that he does. I conduct myself in a different way. I think I conduct myself in a way that's more effective as a leader. Part of what you have to do but, is you have to be strong. You have to deliver yeah. big results. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to alienate people for no reason. And I think some of the reasons why he struggled electorally is because it's not even about the policy. It's about some of these other things. So do you condemn the use of the word the vermin? Be do you focused, condemn be the use of the word vermin then? I, I, I don't use the term, but what I don't do is play the media's game where I'm asked to referee other people. Now, your reading of the exchange might differ from mine. Of course, any decent person would simply denounce or condemn. But there are some extra considerations for a politician who wants to project strength and set his own agenda and not always set himself for future do you condemn, do you disavow sessions. It could get tiresome. So, yeah. You could just say, sure, it's horrible language, and then move on. But Ron DeSantis does want to appeal to Trump-curious voters. His main argument is, you get eight years of me, Trump's rebuttal is, I could do it in four. So since no immediate disavowal of vermin was forthcoming, what we were treated to, if you want to call it that, was what you heard. And it becomes theater. This, now I have to say, Trump saying vermin, bad not good, certainly evokes authoritarians of yore, but it's not quite fate of the Republic stuff. I mean, Trump winning the election, that certainly is fate of the Republic stuff. But, you know, Ron DeSantis is one of maybe five humans on the planet who actually has a chance of preventing that from happening. So spending all your time with do you rebuke, do you condemn, it just takes me to... Skip, scat, voodoo, that day. Will you convert? No, 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 no. Will you confess? No, 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 no. Will you refight? No, 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 no. Will you say yes? No, 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 no. Now I ask in a The NBC news site turned this exchange into its own news item. They want to condemn Trump. But Trump won't do an interview with them. But they do get DeSantis, who wouldn't condemn Vermin. So they, NBC, winds up condemning a guy who wouldn't say that he condemns the guy who actually said it. It was a photo-negative bank shot condemnation. You don't see that all the time. And so what have we learned? How do we grow? <sighs> I'd say in the great menagerie of Republican politics, no one will cop to condemning Vermin. But Ron DeSantis looks a little bit like a weasel. And Donald Trump is something of the cat who swallowed the canary for all the attention he's getting for a sentiment that Republican voters will pretty much love. And for escaping the notice of his voters, who maybe shouldn't look down as they laugh at his jibes at Chris Christie, nor for that matter, should Donald Trump consider his own waistline when speaking of some of the other animals evoked on the stump that day. You know, you're not allowed to use the fat word, and you're probably not allowed to use the pig word, right? And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Peskin's in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.